which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. We went through the different scriptures that showed that. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born, right, of the seed pointing back to the divinity covenant and the fulfillment of the divinity covenant. That's what we spent a lot of our time on last service as well. Of David according to the flesh, that he came in flesh that way, right? Now verse 4. And declared to be the son of God. Are we seeing this over and over again? Paul keeps bringing this out. He's, it's all going back to Jesus Christ. It's all going back to the gospel of Christ. And this is what he's sharing with the Romans here. The son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, now this word here, if you're taking notes, declared in your Bibles, you can circle it. It's harizo. The word harizo, and that's what it means in the Greek there, it, it, it comes from this idea to be bound, to define, or to determine, okay? Even to limit. So think of a horizon, how you begin to see a horizon. What does it do? It defines, it creates a border between, right, the atmosphere and what have you. This is what he's showing us. It determines the farthest part visible on earth in reference to the heavens, the firmaments, as it's described. He says he declared and what did he declare? That Jesus, the son of God. That Jesus is the son of God. And he's also telling us, not only is this declared, but he's saying it's declared throughout all of the word. All of his word here, all of the gospel. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's, it's fully declared. There's 11 verses I'd like to share with you this morning. I don't expect you to turn through all of them because we're going to go through them pretty quick, but I'd ask that you write them down and devotionally you'd go back and visit them and study them in, in devotional time. We're to be without excuse. God has shown us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. It says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. He is the son of God by declared by the father and the gospel. Psalm chapter two, verse seven. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Why am I going through these? And, and there's several more, seven or eight of them. Because today, the person and the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ is being attacked. There's someone that uh, recently had brought it into an elders meeting or a prayer time where someone said that uh, they had visited another church or they had heard, um, and maybe it was a call from someone actually that had been concerned about a brother or sister in Christ in the fellowship. They had visited another church and uh, as they were reading uh, the, the, the scriptures, the church began to say, well, Jesus really never declared himself to be the son of God. Nor did God the Father ever declare that. And, and I couldn't help but thinking, what Bible are you reading? Or should I say, what are you reading that's not the Bible that declares that? Because this is the authority. God the Father himself said, this is God breathed. This is the authority. That's what's happening today. Because if you can take Jesus Christ out, if you can make him or you know, relegate him to something less than God himself, the divinity, right? The word became flesh and he dwelt 
among us, flesh, humanity, both. If you can declare that, if you can take the divinity and the humanity of Christ away, you can then turn around and do what? You can remove what he did on the cross. You can negate it. You can turn around and say it didn't matter and it doesn't exist. And let me tell you something. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would be dead in our sins, our trespasses and sins. That's why there's the attack. Ken Ham Creation uh, Museum in Kentucky. Maybe, maybe some of you have visited. You might know. I remember he came to Calvary Chapel and he, uh, he had a, you know, sometimes he does caricatures, you know, the cartoons and the little things he sort of draws from an apologetic perspective. He drew one that was interesting. He had two um, hot air balloons. Both were floating up in the air, one on each side. And he had all the different things that are going on. He had one that represented sort of the enemy, the evil one, the, you know, principalities and powers of darkness. And then he had one which of the Christians that were standing there and defending the faith. And he had all these things that were being attacked, you know, abortion and, and all the different situations that clearly God has a very specific matter-of-fact commandment on, right? It's murder. It's not something to be, you know, gray. It's very clear. He's given us clarity. Well, what it happens is he says, you know, you see the Christians and the Christians are turning around and they're shooting down all these issues. And it's important to focus on these issues. I'm certainly not saying it's not. And certainly Ken Ham wasn't saying it's not important. But what ended up happening is he's attacking these things. And meanwhile, the enemy has a sign that says Jesus Christ, the son of God. And that's the thing that basically he's going after. But all these other things have our attention and our focus, but we're not keeping our focus on who Christ is. And so while our attack is going on and we're taking out all these other things, we're missing the big attack that's going on by the enemy. Because ultimately, he does not want any of us to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, to God. That's what it's really all about, friends. That's why sometimes when you say, boy, I'm just having a bad day and I don't understand. I've done everything right. I'm not living in sin. Things seem to be, you know, but why do I feel overwhelmed? Why are these things happening? And ultimately, it's spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 5 verses, what is it? Chapter 6, excuse me, verses 11 through 17. It tells us we have an enemy. Now, we're not to be consumed by this. We're not to, to be afraid of that enemy. We're to keep our eyes on Christ. But we're not to be ignorant, friends, brethren, sisters. We're not to be ignorant of the fiery darts. This is one of the largest attacks that we're going to see come in our, our time. It's going to be on the personage of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun because it's the exact same thing the Gnostics did within the first century of Christianity. Peter wrote about it in his second letter about destructive doctrines. So pay attention because it's only going to heat up, especially as we're in the last days here. There's going to be many destructive doctrines that are going to try to pull people away from truth. There are colleges now that are no longer turning around and teaching biblical truth. Christian colleges, they're wavering. They're beginning to say, well, you know, did God really mean this? I don't know about you. My God's not grammatically challenged. My God meant what he said and said what he meant. He, he doesn't struggle with the grammar. I can go to the Hebrew, I can exegete it, I can go to the Greek and exegete it. I'm certainly not a Hebrew or a Greek scholar by any means, but I can go and read it in the original language and it says the same thing that you and I read here today. Sin is sin. And denying Jesus Christ is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Well, 
Let's continue on. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 says, And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John chapter 14, 13. And that was 1 John chapter 4, 10, by the way, if I... If I misspoke that. John chapter 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that my father may be glorified in the son. The son of God. Over and over again. John chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in a like manner. That's why we can trust to follow the son because the son is following the Father and His will. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, but He kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning Him and saying to Him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Why would the high priest have asked that question if Jesus Christ Himself wasn't proclaiming to be the very Son of God? Of course He was. Mark chapter 5, verse 7, and shouting with a loud voice, He said, what business do you have with each other? Jesus the son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment. He was speaking that to a demon. Even the demons know Jesus Christ is the son of God. It's sad when humanity has to catch up. First John chapter five, verses nine and 10, and this is our last one. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Just, just think about that for a minute. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, he says. For the testimony of God is this, that he testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given him concerning the son. He who has the son has life. 1 John chapter 5 verse 11 and 12. He who does not have the son does not have life. It's very cut, cut and clear. There is no multiple ways. Jesus Christ is the only way, and he is the Son of God. Well, as we look back to 4 here, it says, verse 4, it says, the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So we learn that with power, it's through the spirit of holiness that he has this power, right? We see that here. And then it says, by what? It was by the resurrection from the dead. This empty tomb is significant, this is, this is what Paul is pointing out here. This empty tomb is significant. All false gods are still in their tombs, right? Muhammad, he's in his tomb. You can find him there. His dead bones, right? His rod of bones. It's all there. You know, Buddha, fill in the blank. Jesus Christ is the only, only one that's ever been able to resurrect himself. Not resuscitate. Clear difference. But resurrection. Resurrection. Nobody else could do that. His tomb is empty. And because of that, we know that one day, when our eyes close, whether it's, you know, tomorrow or 50 years for some of us, we know that we will be absent with the body and present with the Lord. And we can have no doubt about that. No fear in that either. What a beautiful gift Jesus has given us this side of eternity, hasn't it? It's the greatest gift of all, that he himself will resurrect us just as he resurrected himself. 
Because if he didn't have the power to do that, how could we have trusted and believed he could do it with us? That's why there's an attack on who he is. It's the new covenant shed by his blood. He wasn't bound by death, right? Do you think about that? It was a miraculous power that, that, that demonstrated that Jesus Christ was not bound by death. We, we don't understand that entirely because we can't resurrect ourselves, but God can and he did. Just take that in. I mean, you know, if some of you are 50 years old, 40, maybe older, you've heard this over and Okay, pastor, we get it. Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the way, the truth, the life. There's no one to come to the Father but through the Son. I, I've heard it, yeah. But have you let it transform you? Has it changed your heart? That's what he's saying here. He says he lives and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing there? He's not playing Uno, man. What's he, I'm being funny, yes. I'm not being sacrilegious, I'm being funny. He's not playing Uno. He's interceding for you and I. What did he do when he was on earth? When the disciples were brought into a trial or temptation, when they were on the sea in John chapter six? Did he walk and go, hey, good luck, man. This is gonna be a good, you guys, multitude, 5,000. You guys want, a, you want an after dinner show, huh? This is gonna, watch this, watch these boys. They're gonna get scared. No, he doesn't do that. What's he do? He himself withdraws. It's a good lesson for under-shepherds, pastors, pay attention to this. He withdraws. Why does he withdraw? Because he needs to be with the Father. He needs to be praying. Friends, brothers and sisters here, do you withdraw? Do you have that time where you get away and it's just you and God, and you're pressing into him, and you're hearing from him, and, and it's beautiful? You know, you find a hill somewhere, a mountain, whatever. I mean, we're in like a valley here. There's like, you know, it's all around you if you drive 15, 20 minutes in any direction. Do you take that time? Jesus did. He makes intercessions for you and I. How can we possibly know the will of Father, as it says in Romans 12, if we don't spend time with Jesus the Son? He conquered the grave. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 tells us, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 60, uh, 56, excuse me, through 57 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the greatest news you're going to hear all day. That's the greatest news you're going to hear all day. It only gets better from here, man. It only gets better. No matter what you're going through, it only gets better. Well, verse 5 through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot going on there. It's through him we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of the faith. The gospel, what does it do? It impacts individual lives, amen? Your life, my life, you that are here that are born again believers, has it not impacted and changed your life? Are you the same as you were when you got saved? No, what do we call that? Sanctification, the process that only God the Father and Jesus works through us. But God impacts our individual lives through the gospel. It's not a theory. It's not an interesting idea or philosophy. It's life-changing good news. It's life-changing good news. It's wonderful that way. You see, the gospel gave Paul and the church, grace. 
Do you see that? And what? Apostleship. To be sent ones. To be sent ones that way. And one reason these two gifts were given was to produce what? Obedience. It's in your Bible. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. Obedience and what? Faith. Obedience and faith. You see, without grace, favor, and without help of God, he couldn't have been an apostle, Paul. It was direct revelation through Jesus Christ to the apostle Paul that way. And while we're not apostles today, per se, because it was the beginning of the ministry and it was laying the foundation, and that's what a, apostles did. Well, there are no modern-day apostles. In some ways, aren't we all modern-day apostles when you want to think of the idea of what it means to be missionaries or sent ones? In that regard, if we use the term not as an office, but as a sent one, we all are called that. Matthew 28, 19, he gave us a great commission and a great commandment. Obedience to the faith in the New Testament was belief. That's how you accomplished obedience and faith. It was belief. That's how you did that. It, it was nothing else. It was simple, beautiful, innocent, childlike faith and belief. That's what Jesus Christ taught. In John chapter 6, verse 28, the disciples asked what we must do to perform the works of God. Do, do you remember Jesus' answer? Do you remember? Turn in your Bibles there. John chapter 6, verse 28. It's an important question. Are we not disciples of the living God? Are we not all to be asking that same question? Absolutely. Certainly. As Paul would say. Jesus said, this is the work of God. In verse 28 of chapter 6. That you believe in him whom he sent. That's what it looks like. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus plus something. I encourage you all to get that burned in your mind and in your heart through the Holy Spirit because in the days that we are living, as John 6, 28 says to us, in the days that we are living, we are going to have that attacked more and more. Some of you are looking at me. If I've got the wrong verse, I apologize. But I believe it's John chapter 6, verse 28. This is the work of God that you believe in him who sent, whom he sent. Further down, look in that same passage, further down in chapter 6. Look at verse 40. What does Jesus say? And this is the will of him who sent me. Who's that? Who's he talking about? God the Father, right? That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus. And he gives them a promise here. He says in the last days, he says, I will raise him up. Right? He says, the last day I'm going to raise him up. That's a promise. That's prophecy. That's prophetic. That's going to happen for you and I. Don't you love the promises of Christ? I, I, over 1,300 of them as we study them through Scripture. These promises, because he doesn't want us to have failing hearts. He says in the days that we're living, and we're already seeing it, 
anxiety, 70, what is it, up to 60 or 70% of every single human being alive today is facing some form of anxiety and or depression today. What is he telling us? He's saying in the last days that, that our hearts would begin to fail because we're going to be looking at what's happening around us and with the natural eye, with the human eye, what else would you become? It would be a natural response. Even us as believers in Christ, we too go through that sometimes, don't we? We have moments of anxiety, don't we? We have moments of depression. That doesn't make you, you know, not normal. I have people that come in and see me sometimes and they say, you know, pastors, you know, I'm having these thoughts. These things are happening. You know, am I not a true believer? Is there something wrong with my walk? Well, I can't answer all of that for you. But do you love Jesus Christ with your heart, mind, soul, and all of your strength? You do? Are you in sin? No, no, you repented. You're not living in a sinful way. You're not shacking up. You're not turning around and engaging in, uh, you know, uh, fornication. You're not turning around and uh, you're, not, you're not engaged in um, homosexual, you know, sexual morality and behavior that way. No, you're not. Okay. Well, how about this? How about it, you, we look at what Jesus said and he said that in not only Matthew chapter 6, that if it's some of the things we're holding on to, the cares of this world, that word, by the way, translated in the Greek is anxieties. That's actually what it means, anxieties, those cares. He uses that term, that care means anxiety. He's saying if you're doing this. Now, somebody I just met this morning said they worked in the circus or they were in the carnival, right? So, so they turned around and they said that's what they did. And, I, and immediately I think of carnival, I, the good times, they're fun. But I think of juggling sometimes. I think of circus. But that's not what God wanted us to do. He didn't want us to turn around and take the balls of life and the cares and just start trying to, because guess what happens? You ever seen somebody juggle? They're good at it, right? They keep going. Two hours later, how you doing? I'll do that for you guys. I'll give you that, right? What, what am I doing there? What am I showing? My arms, they grow weak. I grow tired. My strength begins to fail. Wait, what did God, what did Jesus say would happen it's when our strength begins to fail that we experience some of that anxiety. But he told us, hey, you know what? He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. And when your eyes are on me and you get your heart and your mind renewed, he says, I give you enough strength for the day. My mercies are made new every morning. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Jesus. Once again, grace. It's not something I deserved. But he does it because he loves you and he loves me and he, he wants to free us from that because he's saying in the end days when we're seeing all these things go on around us, he's saying, you know what? Yeah, hearts are going to be failing because they don't know Christ. They don't have the hope. They're not believing. They're not trusting in that. They're trusting in themselves. And, and friends, that can happen to you and I. And I'm not trying to knock anybody down here for because it can happen to me. It has happened to me. There's times where I begin to trust in myself. And, and look, I don't want you to worry about your pastor, but there's times where I begin to do that. I'm human like everyone else, and I, I begin to trust. And next thing you know, the anxiety, I start to, it starts to get up to here. And then I got to go home, and I got to go, Lord, I just need to get with you because, boy, it, it, it's starting to reek a lot around here of me. I, 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 and my focus is on you. And yes, there are horrible things happening. But God, you have a beautiful, perfect plan. And while I can't see it, I can trust that it will work for good. You see, that's really what it comes down to. 
you either believe and trust, even in, when the difficult things happen, that God has a beautiful plan for that. If you saw a trailer and you based the whole movie on the trailer, you might be what? Disappointed. You might be disappointed. Well, God sees the full-length movie. We can trust him. He wants to take that anxiety from you. He wants to take that depression from you. Do you ever worship God and find yourself in an anxious or depressed mode? Boy, it's real hard to do that. I've never met anybody who can do that. You're worshiping God. You're singing to God. And at the same time, you're like, I'm depressed. No, I'm not. Yes, no, you can't do it. it, it they're mutually exclusive. But it's hard to get into that, isn't it? It's difficult. Somebody in here is going to go, wait a minute, I did that. I'm going to be like, okay, we got to talk. Because I don't know how you did that. That's pretty impressive. But he says, look, you're going to have everlasting life. I'm going to raise you up on this, the last day. He says, the, you see the gospel? It was meant to go out to the whole world. And it's meant to impact all nations. That's why he says that there in verse 5 and 6. It's meant to impact all nations. It's the only thing that can change the heart and bring bring the Romans, the Gentiles, to salvation. It's the only thing that can do it. Look at verses 7, and I'll read 7 through 15 here. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. That's who this letter's written to. To all who are in Rome, to all who are in Harrisburg, beloved of God, that's you, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Officially, we just got passed through the introduction. How about that? <laughs> First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world of good reputation. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, intercessory prayer, making requests by, if by some means now last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. That's why he said in your will, not his striving, that I may have some fruit among you also, just among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor to both the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach or declare the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Well, let's take that apart. Let's begin back with the two, all of you in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Paul had never been to Rome, Right? He didn't even find found this, this church in Rome, right? You remember we talked about in the introduction that the way this church was founded probably has to do with Acts chapter 2.10 where they had come to the day of Pentecost and they had returned home and a Christian community was birthed because of the work that was done in the heart of the believer or unbeliever that became saved. You see, why do I bring that up to you? Because just as Paul's bringing it up to the Romans, we have no idea of the power of the gospel. When you plant that seed and you share the good news, you don't know. Somebody, you may not see them again. They may go home and they may confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as the Lord should lead, years later, next thing you know, they're starting a Bible study. A few years later and after that, next thing you know, Calvary Chapel's being planted. 
A few years later than that, next thing you know, God's just done a work and people are being sent out to that, to Halifax. It's amazing what God is doing. We don't know low. So take every opportunity you're given as the Holy Spirit leads to share the good news. Like I said earlier, it might be the only good thing that that person hears that day. And it could be changed. It could be that thing that changes everything for them. I know it was for me and for probably many of you that are sitting here this morning. When you received Christ, didn't it change everything for you? Not that the next day everything became super easy. No, I would argue it's, it's difficult to live out the Christian faith according to the word of God. You know, there's no bait and switch. Too much of the attraction. Have you, have you heard about that? That's the new thing, the attraction church today. I don't know if you guys follow some of the destructive doctrines. Remember the emergent church? You remember through that, right? The emergent church is drawing them in. You know, let's have beer parties and keggers, man. And then let's all go, let's go talk about Jesus. Okay, no, certainly not. And then we move from the emergent church to now this other type of church where it's called the attractive church. Don't you want to be attractive? It's disgusting. It's disgusting when you market the word of God. Jesus Christ was very clear that the church was not to look like the world, but that the world was to be drawn out into the church, that a work and a transformation would begin and a sanctification and a holiness would begin. They wouldn't be the same. You shouldn't blend in. You're not called to blend. I'm not called to blend. Be encouraged. If you're facing that spiritual battle, if you're being tugged in your heart about that, you do not compromise. Now, I'm not saying you in any way look down upon someone else that's not a believer. Certainly, Jesus Christ never said that and taught that. We love the individual. We hate the sin. But God is very clear here. that the word of God never returns void and that seeds can be planted by just telling someone that Jesus loves them. It doesn't have to be, you know, this amazing gospel presentation of 30 minutes. Friends, earn the right to invest in someone's life. Be others focused. That's what he wants. That's all he asked us for. He wants all of our hearts and he wants us to be others focused. Now, we know that Paul here, writing to this church in Romans chapter 16, we read of the 27 up to 35 mutual acquaintances, you might say, that he had met as he was there. So as he's writing this introduction, as he's writing this letter, he's speaking to these folks, he's encouraging them, you know, and he, he didn't know them all personal, but what could he say to them? He knew a couple things that he could say to them. Two things in particular. Look at there in verse 17. He knew they were beloved of God. And he knew that they were saints. Hagios. Right? He knew they were beloved of God. And he knew they were saints. Now, 
just so we're all on the same page when, when I say beloved in what we're talking about in the original language, in the Greek here. This is the same word that God the Father himself uses of Jesus Christ the Son when he was baptized. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. You can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. That's the same word. That Jesus Christ, or excuse me, God the Father used for Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. And now, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God himself, those who are in Harrisburg, my beloved, the same word that we see that was given to Jesus Christ, God our Father loves us that way. Have you ever thought about that? How amazing that is? That we are beloved that way? The other thing that's interesting about this word and the way it's used, I made a note about it here because it was something God had shown me in just the original language. It says, already well pleased. Grammatically, when you look at it in the Greek, it's not, I am now well pleased, Jesus, because you were just baptized. That's not what he's saying. I'm now well pleased because you just did this and you've done this for me. Or you've done this for me. You've done this for me. No, he's not saying this. What he's saying is, I am already pleased. I am already pleased. Insert your name. I love you. You are my beloved. Insert your name. That's what God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, is telling you right now. Again, I told you it was going to be a good morning. It's not going to be anything greater than you can hear. Than the word of God when he encourages you and he tells you how much he loves you. And no matter how difficult it is, no matter what's going on, you can walk out of here with your eyes high on the Lord, looking to God, knowing I am the son and daughter, not me both, you and figure that out. I am the son and daughter of the living God. I am the apple of his eye. And in me, he is well pleased, already well pleased. Thank you, Jesus. What, what more? I mean, we could close the Bible right now. And what more would we need to hear this morning to understand our identity in Christ? That's who we are. And that doesn't change. That doesn't change when you blow it. That's who you always will be in Christ. If you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? What a gift to be loved of the God of the universe so much as he loves his only begotten son. What more could anybody want? What more could anybody wait for? I mean, it's the greatest gift ever. Called to be saints. Spurgeon notes, you notice that the words to be are put in by the translators. That's italics in some of your Bibles. But though they are supplied, they are not really necessary to the sense. These believers in Rome were called saints. Not to be saints, they were called saints. And if you look in the Greek, in the original language, go to Blue Letter Bible. You can look at it yourself and exegete it yourself. You will see that to be is not there. It is called saints. You already are. There's no canonization or anything, you know, like, I don't know the word they do use, but whatever they call it to make you, a, some churches believe that they somehow have to do a process or a ceremony to make you a saint. That's not what the Bible says. 
Right here in the Greek, it says, you and I, we are the saints. Aren't you glad somebody doesn't have a picture of us sitting on your dashboard going, moving around, right? Aren't you glad? That's all, I'm racked. I'm racked over the years. Thank you, Jesus, for the washing of my mind. These believers in Rome were called saints. They were not called because they were saints, but they became saints through the calling. This is an election. This isn't a philosophy that we're trying to bake in here about some that are called and ours that aren't called as man tries to introduce his philosophy of a Calvin or Arminian. None of that matters in this passage. God doesn't say, well, what did Calvin say? No. What's the word of God say? He said, called saints. Not to be called, not you may be called. You are called when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Right? And why? Because you became saints through Jesus Christ calling. How did that happen? Did we love him first or did he first love us? He first loved us. And was that love restricted to a group of people? Or did it say everyone? Everyone, everywhere. That's how we know. If we would just test everything in the light of Scripture, there wouldn't be hermeneutical problems today. We wouldn't have philosophies run amok. If we just kept everything in context and tested everything in the light of Scripture, how about this? If we ran our lives through the grid of Scripture, oh, that's, I'm getting far out, man. I'm far out. I'm getting crazy now. You actually would live your life through the grid of Scripture? Oh my, I'm getting fundamental. I'm getting fundamental on you. I am fundamental. Because God tells me so. He wants every part of my heart, every part of my mind, every part of my soul and spirit that way. What right do I have to say, well, I'll give you this, but I'm I'm just going to keep this back. What? Since when does absolute surrender mean anything less than absolute? But boy, people like to change the verbs, the adjectives. They like to change things. That's what Satan did, didn't he? When he tempted, tempted uh, excuse me, when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Chapter four there of Matthew. He took half truth and twisted them. You know what a half truth is? You know it. Praise God. He says, grace to you and peace from God. So Paul now gives his formal address in this letter here. And it's a familiar greeting, combining the Greek greeting with grace and peace. They're, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, they're the Siamese, you know, Siamese twins that way. You, you, can't, you don't have one without the other. And they almost always, in the scriptures you study this, one follows the progression of the other, right? Grace and peace. I think it's only in one, one or two places where you see peace and grace. But it's, it's grace and peace that way. It's beautiful. So he's, he's addressing this, and he, and he uses this Jewish greeting of peace. What, what, what do Jews say if we're in Israel and we look at each other? What do we say? Shalom. How about it, everybody? One, two, three. Ready? Shalom. All right. I didn't count the three, but I went with you. Some of you are still awake. That's awesome. So, so this grace and peace... It's not a kind of, you know, wishful thinking. These are gifts, and they come to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? I think with our time today, um, 
we're going to stop there because I don't want to rush verses 16 through 17. These verses, oh man, we could take an hour just on those two verses. This is where Luther came to his understanding of justified. We have to go through definitions. I'm going to spend a lot of times going through the basics uh, next week as well. When I say we're justified, we sing about being justified. We talked about being redeemed. We talked about sanctification. There's a lot of words. I call them Christianese. There's a lot of Christianese we use. But how many of us really understand the original intent or meaning of these words? Because when Luther read this, and he went through it, and he saw this, he was wrecked. So much so that he began to think, well, what is going on with the church that he was a member of at that time? Why are we charging money for indulgences? Why, why are we doing these different things? It changed his, his whole view of everything. Do you notice that? I mean, and isn't that what the gospel should do? It should change your whole view of everything. So get ready. Buckle up. Because as we come next week and we go through 16 through 7, we'll probably make our way through the rest of the chapter. But 16 and 17, we're going to, please bring a notebook. If you have a notebook, bring it with you. We're going to go through some important um, Greek words that you need to understand and because they're foundational to your faith. And when you see the original intent of these words, it's like Luther, when he studied the original language, even in the German, he would go back and look. When you see that and you're, you're just wrecked because God was trying to make it so clear so that nobody could turn around and try to, you know, water down this beautiful gospel that Jesus Christ had given to make it anything but grace and justified by faith. And Paul's going to spend so much time in so many epistles making sure that people don't boast in themselves or in what they're doing or all the things that they can do, but they begin to find their strength. They begin to find their identity in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Let's stand and pray. I'd ask our worship team to come up for a closing song. Some of you will notice that I actually was on time today. Uh, no, no clapping needed for that. That was the Holy Spirit. Because uh, I would have kept going, man. We'd been here till 3 o'clock. Uh, but we would have got through 16 and 17 by 3 p.m. Um, no, I love the Word of God, and I know you do too, and that's why you're here. You love Jesus Christ more than anything, and that's why you're here. And I, and I'm, I praise God every week for that. Um, but it's something that I, I'm going to try to be a little bit more disciplined to, to have our, our, our teachings around services around 45 minutes because we will have a second service coming in December. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want that to back into to that. So um, I'm praying about, you know, we do Sunday night prayer, but I'm also praying about maybe uh, if the Lord should lead another night where we go a little deeper into the original language on the topic we just covered, um, not only systematically, but maybe also... Um, I don't know. I'm still praying through this with God on my commitments and what, what I have here. But um, I'm just thinking about, you know, maybe what it would be like to, uh, you know, it used to be Pastor Chuck did the teaching Sunday morning and then Sunday night he would also go into a deeper, more conversational teaching for Sunday night where, you know, they would go very slow. He'd cover a chapter in the morning, but maybe he'd get through five or seven verses, but really pull the meat off the bone in those five or seven verses. Because we're going at this, I know you think we're not going at this, we're going at this at a pretty fast clip right now. I mean, there's a lot in here. And we're doing, you know, the best we can to kind of keep moving. 
but I also don't want us spiritually neglecting the meat on the bone. So I, I'm trying to balance this and whether that means do we do like another night? Do we do it as a something? I don't know. I'm praying or maybe we just flat out slow down and we just take our time to go through it as the Lord needs and I trust the Holy Spirit gives you the application as needed. So let's pray. Jesus, as you overheard, I, I bring all these to you right now, Lord. I, I want to be spirit-led. I certainly don't want to have ideas of man or flesh, God. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you in all ways that you are the shepherd at this church here, Lord God, at this body as it's gathered. This is your body. We belong to you. Um, we're blood-bought, and God, we, we agree. And we, uh, we want to be in unity, Jesus, as we see Paul here for the rest of this passage now, moving on to 16 and 17, Lord, throughout all of chapter 3. God, he's, as you know, you wrote it, Lord. He is going to be unifying everyone, not in their mighty works, but actually in their sin. That, you, that the whole world can be united in sin and therefore we all realize that we need a savior. And that's what you did, Jesus Christ. You, you unite everyone when you draw us together and we realize our inadequacy. And so Jesus, I don't run from my inadequacy anymore, God. I, I know, I hope my friends here this morning, we don't run from our inadequacy, Lord. We bring it to you. And we say, God, less of us, more of you. Help us to decrease, Jesus. We want you to be our Lord and Savior. We want you to be our master. And Lord, we pray you wash our minds and you give us strength, Lord, and you help us fight the good fight. Every day, Lord, is a, is a spiritual battle. And God, we can't do it without you. So Jesus, I pray just a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit upon everyone here for boldness, for your gospel. Lord, I pray just a, a healing upon all that are here, Lord, this morning. Lord, if there's any infirmity, you know, infirmities, sickness, Lord, whatever it may be, mental, physical, spiritual, I pray over the flock here this morning. And God, I pray just a blessing on the people here is, Lord, again, as you say in Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 27, Lord, as you told us, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face so shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace that the name of God would be written upon each and every one of us here. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.